Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. so happy to welcome back returning guests. It's been at least, we said, probably three, four years uh, since I talked to Dave Warnock. So welcome back, Dave, to Mindshift Podcast. Hey, Clint. Good to be back, man. Man, I'm so glad that we connected on so many levels, just for one thing, to see how the hell you're doing. Because obviously, I mean, this is not a spoiler alert. People know you have ALS. You made that very clear. And obviously, you talk about that in the book, which I'm sure we'll get to. But can you tell us how you're doing nowadays? How How's the prognosis? Well, the prognosis, yeah, I, I don't recall when we first recorded the podcast, whether or not I'd learned, you know, as the first year of, of my ALS, I was seeing doctors and I learned within the first six months that I have what they call a very slow progressing form of it. And initially the, the symptoms, the um, muscle degeneration was really only occurring in my hands and, and arms. It started in my fingers and worked its way through my hand. And then my arms became more and more useless, if you will. And that really was where it was contained for the better part of three years. And um, here in 2022, this is what, September of 2022, I could say that probably the beginning of this year, I don't recall exactly. It's hard to measure this kind of stuff because it's so gradual. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you can't notice from one day to the next, but you can from one quarter to the next or every couple of months you go, wow, this is harder to do than it was three months ago or whatever. But this year I've started to notice walking is becoming more challenging. It's so it's progressed to my legs, you know, having trouble climbing stairs and, uh, recently got a wheelchair. I'm not, I'm not confined to the wheelchair, but if we're doing something that requires a lot of walking, if I'm going to be uh, traveling like tomorrow, we're catching a plane. And so I'll take the wheelchair to the airport because going from one gate to the next and, and I've learned, I've learned at airports with wheelchairs, you get to the front of the line. So that's right. Uh, Jump the queue, as they say. You want to skip the lines, just get ALS. It's a, it's a quick <laughs> way to get where you're going faster, uh, yeah. <laughs> including dying. Um, yeah. But no, it's uh, so it's progressed to the legs where that's everything with walking is becoming more difficult. And that's kind of where I'm at right now, up to date, September 26, 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, it still hasn't progressed to my voice. I'm still speaking well and able to do things like this. So all I can do is thank God. It's pro- obviously a God thing that he's kept that part. So I can continue to blaspheme his name over the airwaves <laughs> another year. Yes. Or two. <laughs> and I'm sure I know we'll get into this uh, later on, because obviously you talk about it in the book, Childish Things, which is kind of why we're talking now yeah. Uh, about your book and you know we'll get into all that you talk about when you first were diagnosed with ALS and the fact that at that point you already had left the church and you were basically an atheist and so that's got to be a weird thing in the in the sense that you're not doing it with God so to speak we, right. we talked about you know back in the old evangelical days you would have been on a prayer chain and people oh, yeah. would have been praying for you 24 7 and you know asking God to heal you and all that so you're going oh, yeah. it alone really in a way aren't you yeah, and, and it actually makes it, strangely enough, it makes it easier. Because, so? because if you remember back in the day when God was involved in everything, whenever you got a diagnosis or whenever something happened, you had to factor God into it. Where's God in this? Mm-hmm. You know, what's God doing? What's God saying? And so you, you pray and you ask to, for God's wisdom and you ask for God to speak to you, show you why he, why you have this disease. What's he okay, is he trying to teach me something? Right. Is this an attack from the enemy? Is there some secret sin that I'm not aware of? And you start going through all those gyrations to try to figure out where God is. Whereas 
with God not in the picture anymore, when you get something like this, you just go, wow, I, it just happened, you know? Right. Shit happens. Of, exactly. A certain number of people get diagnosed with this every year, and I just happen to be one of them. There's no God involved. Mm-hmm. And there's no there's no figuring out why. You don't, you don't have to worry about the big why question. Why did I get this? Mm-hmm. My, my response is, why would I not get it? Why would I not be someone who got diagnosed it just happened to me Mm. so here we are now what do we do with it it just deal with it and i was going to say okay i said you're going it alone but that's not really true is it because one thing that really struck me from the book and i know i keep saying we'll get to this but (laughs) when you were diagnosed with als you already had a community around you of sort of ex-evangelicals atheists it seems like you were leaning on that community more and more and more, which basically took the place of your former church community who, you know, let's be honest, they shit on you on a lot of levels, which unfortunately Christians are very prone to do. Yeah. So that's true. You have a, you have a a replacement community as it were, that's your new church in a a weird way. It must be surely on some level. It is. It's very much like the, like a church. It's, it's a group of people who, who come together around a common theme and our common theme is we've all been deconstructed from a former evangelical faith. And so that kind of, it's kind of trauma bonding, you know, where you, you all have this identity that's connected through this shared experience. And it is very much like a church. It's like a secular church. And mm-hmm. when we would get together, we wouldn't sing hymns and have altar calls and pass the bucket, but we would very much gather around and have community and enjoy each other's company and share stories and share life experiences and what's what's going on in your life and what's going on in my life and that's really what church that's what the better part of church was right if we're honest you know uh, and when i talk to people you know and you do too who've who've left church what's the thing they miss the most they miss the community they miss Mm -hmm. that connection and oftentimes people have a hard time finding it we, we've we've met Bevan and I and our in our travels and in our on my online work have met dozens if not hundreds of people who live in these small towns in the country or in the world and they're very much isolated from anyone who's like-minded and it's very hard for them to find community and a lot of times their community is the online community we have this Monday night show we're doing tonight the the GD show we do it every Monday night. And what we've seen, and you've seen it with other shows, the atheist experience and stuff that I've been on, you see in the chat rooms, these people gathering together mm-hmm. and you'll see them come into the chat room on the show. And it's like, they're coming to church. They're coming to be with their people every Monday night. And you see them, Hey man, where you bad? You been good to see yeah. you. Uh, yeah, They're just in a chat room, you know, so it's not a real human yeah. connection in my opinion but it's better than nothing and it's it's a way for people to connect and so absolutely yeah especially you're if right, you live I, in different parts of the country or the world yeah you know people can drop drop in from australia and south africa and they and do yeah europe and uk and, and north america and it's really beautiful yeah it's a wonderful yeah. thing isn't it in that way the technology has allowed us since covid really people have been able to see that you can work from home. You can do everything on Zoom. We're talking on Zoom, you and I right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the UK. You're, are you still kind of in the Memphis area? Where are you living? No, now? I, I was in Nashville. I'm in Charlotte, North oh, Carolina right. now. Right. Okay. And yeah, Bevan lived here. So it made sense for us to locate mm-hmm. here. So are you still, that last question, I know I'm, I want to get into the book, but when we talked before a couple, three years ago, you were doing the Dying Out Loud tour thing. Are you still involved in that? Is that kind of what your YouTube show has morphed into? The YouTube show just, I think it, yeah, I'm, I'm still doing Dying Out Loud. That's the overall organization that formed after the diagnosis. And so that is, that encompasses everything. I mean, like when we wrote the book, we self-published it under the Dying Out Loud label. And the GD show is is a part of our YouTube, Dying Out Loud YouTube channel. Those things are just stuff that we started doing in order to find more avenues to spread the word, you know, <laughs> spread, spread the, the gospel. gospel. Um, yeah. But yeah. Speaking. I did a lot of, I was doing a lot of speaking before COVID and then for most of 2020 and half of 21, didn't do much of that at all. And then it started back up this year. I did a lot of conferences and have some individual speaking gigs. Um, as we, as we mentioned off air, you know, my, my physical limitations are increasing. And so travel becomes more problematic mm. and I have to pick and choose where I'm going to go and be very 
selective about the, the speaking engagements that I do take. And I try to limit it mostly to conferences or places. If it's an individual group, you know, if they can, if they can fly me in and take care of those expenses, then I'm happy to do that. But if they can't, then it's too much for us to take on yeah. to do a, a road tour. We used to kind of do the road tour thing and, you know, go from stop to stop and, yeah. uh, on a road it's trip. Just, it's just too physically demanding for us now. Mm-hmm. So we have to be very selective. But all, all that's together, the Dying Out Loud thing. The GD show was just a show that we started doing a little over a year ago. And we have guests and take calls and just have conversations around important topics and things that are going on in the world that, that kind of affect us all. And we, we look at it through a secular lens. So mm. it's been, a, it's been a, a good success and it's been a really good way to connect with more people. That's my goal is just to connect with as many That's people. That's the goal. As and as we've said many times, I just talked to Bruce, Bruce Geringster. I don't know if you are familiar yeah. with him, but yeah, Bruce, he, he said he knew, he knew you, but we had a, a chat the other week and, you know, we, we still have this sort of quote unquote pastoral, you know, bent. Yeah. I think so many of us that were, he was a pastor for decades. I was a pastor for about 12 years. You were a pastor, you know, even though we've taken God out of that picture, we still have that heart for people, those sort of values that are sort of inbred, don't we? So you can't really seem to escape that on some levels. It It is who we are. And I, I told Bevan yesterday, she was gone most of the day visiting with her father and doing some stuff. And I, she came back and I was watching football, but I said, I spent half the day on the phone doing pastoral ministry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just had several phone calls from people who were going through stuff that wanted to talk. Yeah. And, and it's just the same thing I used to do. And exactly. Just without the God component. Yeah, yeah it's true. I, lo- I, lo- I never got a chance to meet Bruce, but I've connected with him and we've chatted back and forth a few times and I really would like to meet him one of these days. Yeah. He's got a fantastic beard. Uh, so I said, you've got the better beard than mine. You know, yeah. so you got this massive ZZ top beard thing going on, but <laughs> yeah, he's great. We had a really fantastic conversation. He's coming out of the independent fund fundamental Baptists. And yeah, my God, I mean, we got into the weeds on that one, you know, but oh, God, I can't yeah. Imagine. So now going into the book, you've got this book, childish things which i would say now we got a couple of things we have to mention right up front first of all i went through the book on audible which in retrospect i would say to people if you could get the audible version do that rather than the paperback because i was at you narrate it and to me that makes it even more personal so yeah. and i appreciate the fact that it must have been difficult physically to go through all that manuscripting and actually narrate the book but i think it makes it a lot more poignant in that respect i mean is that your reasoning for why you wanted to narrate the book yeah the i felt like a memoir should be read in the author's voice to be really authentic i didn't i didn't want some other voice to tell my story and uh, i you know i no one loves the sound of their own voice. And I feel like I've got this southern, <laughs> southern draw thing going on. But I think it does make it more authentic to to hear the story in my voice. And yeah, it was a, it was a process. It was funny. It was during the winter. And um, what really it helped me in several ways. I, I really was a stickler for detail on the book. And I wanted to make sure there was no typos, no problem, no, nothing. I mean, I had it gone no. through with a fine tooth comb. And what was great was when I was reading the audible version of it, I even caught one or two more little things (laughs) as, as minute as, as a, as a space where there shouldn't be a space and I would see it and I would fix it. (laughs) Gotta fix it. And, but it was funny because uh, I, I was doing it right here where I do my show, kind of a studio that I have here where I do any shows that are online. I've got a little, studio quality mic and some lighting and stuff mm-hmm. but during the winter i'd have to turn off the heat because the, the the mic would pick up any little sound right and if a truck was driving by so somehow for some reason the neighbors down two houses down decided to do a major reconstruction on their job <laughs> right on their house. So they remodel kind of, job you know they're jackhammers and shit and you could hear a plane fly over and i had to pause every time that would happen and so it was a and my voice would get tired. So when I, yeah. I would talk about, I would read about 15 minutes worth and then I would have to take a break for a couple yeah. of hours and then come back to it. So I did it in four, three or four segments a day, but it really, I was not going to do an audiobook, And then Bevan talked me into it. 
I was really glad I did because it's it's been the most popular version of the book in terms of paperback mm-hmm. or audible or ebook that or hardcover. I've got four versions: the hardcover, paperback, ebook, and audio. And the audiobook has been the most popular one. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad I did it. I'm really glad you did too. Now, the other thing I was going to mention, I don't see how, and I was sitting there thinking about this the last couple of days, knowing this was coming up. I don't see how we can avoid spoiler alerts for those yeah. who haven't read the book, because when we get into the topics, I mean, some of the things they know, people know you have ALS. So that's that's come that comes at the end of the book. So we we can just dispense with that right away. And and people know that you used to be a pastor and you left the church. So that's yeah. not really a spoiler either, but there's some things that happen in the book. I don't see how we can avoid talking <laughs> about them, which is going to spoil the book for someone who hasn't read it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't get the book and, and read it or go through the audible version. So how, how are we going to get there without spoiling you know, a lot of these I don't things? I think that's a problem. I've had people tell me, I've, I've had a lot of really good response from the book. There's great reviews on Amazon, but I've also gotten a lot of personal messages from people who have told me how much the book impacted them. But a lot of the, some, some of the comments that I found, found interesting were people who would say things like, I thought I knew your story. I, I've heard you on right. so many shows and I knew pretty much everything about your life, but then reading the book added so much detail and nuance to it that I really hadn't considered. So even if it looks like we're giving a spoiler alert with some event or experience from the book it there's still a lot in there that mm-hmm. the reader will gain even knowing what's coming because there's the way that I told the story was filled with a lot of sensory detail was what my co-writer calls it she yeah, was a, I agree she, she was a, a she's a, a professor of creative writing in English and a doctorate level so she really knows her shit so she would she would say, you know, create sensory details so people feel like they're in the room with you and they're hearing what you're hearing and seeing what you're seeing and smelling what you're smelling. And so even though, you know, an event has happened, you'll you'll experience it differently when you read the book. And it'll and I had this so many people tell me it was like I was there. I was feeling it. I was I was experiencing mm-hmm. that emotion with you. And so, yeah, I don't think we can we need to worry about spoiler. OK, alerts. we'll just dispense with that. Well, and one thing I love about the book, just as a comment too on that issue, yes, it is. It's got that sensory appeal to it. You feel like you're right there with you as these things are happening. But as you're talking about the time you were an evangelical and then a pastor, a church leader, and all that, you don't necessarily reflect on it in the text critically at that point. You'd say, you know, God led me to do this, or I prayed and the Spirit led, you know, and you'll you that was the language that you used at the time. We that's how we talked. Right. And I noticed there's only a couple of points in the actual narrative where you kind of the narrator, as it were, comments on the character Dave. Right. Does that make sense? Where you say that happened and I I no longer believe that or something. You know, you you yeah. just kind of let it flow. And what struck me was, you know, it, it is that uncritical thing where you're 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 allowing the reader to experience that along with you. Cause like I say, that's how we talked, that's how we thought, that's how we lived when we were in the church. Yeah, I'm glad that came through to you because I really, really, really wanted to make sure. And and that was that was what was hard about writing the book was was putting myself back into that scene and living mm-hmm. it, reliving it. 20, 30 years ago, these things happened. And it when I put myself back in the play, I wanted to be the Dave that was there in 1977 or 1976 or 1989. I didn't want to be looking back on that Dave from the, from the vantage point of today's Dave. Right. And so it, it kind of forced me to relive it as I'm telling the story. And it made me relive the emotions and for good or for good or bad, you know, sure. because a lot of those were bad, bad memories or they're bad memories now, but in the time it was who I was. Exactly. It was the person I was living in that, in that moment. And yeah. So I really tried to capture the moment and not reflect back on it from today's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you have a dip- different sort of what they call the epic situation, which is your point of view as Dave, as the person you are now, as you say, looking back, you could so easily intrude into the narrative and make yeah. those narratorial comments and say something about it. But I, I appreciate the fact that you don't, because like I said, it took me right back when you talk about becoming a Christian in the first place, because 
the the structure of the book one another thing that i was struck by was that it's got sort of two sides to it on the one hand you dip in and out of your experiences with your father yeah. and hit you know divorcing your mother and then every so often you'll you just stick a little chapter in there where you have an encounter with your dad and then maybe several years later another little encounter and yeah. as the book goes on and then you've got your personal story sort of interspersed in between those and what struck me is that a couple of things one is that obviously it was a very bittersweet thing because as he goes along this is a spoiler alert he gets yeah. more and more entrenched in his fundamentalism and just absolutely dogmatic and how that kind of destroyed your relationship. And then one thing that struck me was that when I was a pastor, I used to tell people, don't let your relationship with your earthly father distort the view of God. You know, yeah. and I must, that must have come through at some point, like your view of God was warped somehow by your father, who was a fundamentalist and he, you know, abandoned you and went off and lived his different life. I mean, were you thinking on, along those lines at any point? Yeah, that was the struggle the Massey vignettes, if you will, his name was Massey. So we called those the Massey verses. And the struggle throughout my life was, was this sense of disconnect between how, how my heavenly father was supposed to treat me and, and care for me and how my earthly father was completely disconnected from that and dissociated with that. Although he claimed a faith in God, he, he was very much a, an adamant adamant that his Christianity was the true and right one, the only right one in mind. That was the struggle. I was a charismatic, evangelical, spirit-filled, tongue-talking Christian all of those years. And when he would intrude himself or re-intrude re back into my life, he literally popped in and out just like it shows in the book. You'd right. be, you'd just appear one day. Yeah, you're, you're reading along in the book, and then here comes a Massey verse out of nowhere. Right that is not connected with the ongoing narrative of my story, but that's how he was mm. in my life. I'd be, he, he literally showed up in our driveway one day. I mean, that really happened. And he would, he would send these letters. And, and so in, in all of that, in all of his interaction with me, he would tell me how wrong my faith was. I wasn't doing it right. Mm -hmm. And, and so there was this struggle with me trying to, appease my earthly father but disagree with him and feel his disapproval and it continued to to mess with me well into my 50s until my therapist said don't even open the letters just quit reading yeah. those letters from him those are not doing you any good too toxic they're toxic yeah yeah i had to do the same thing with my mother i i have someone said just she would send me the the keyboard warrior emails you know, the long ranting emails. But yeah. And I've, I've, someone said, just create a folder in your inbox, <laughs> label, labeled mom. And when you see an email from her, just shove it in there. Don't even read it. Just, yeah. you know, so I've got loads of emails that my mother wrote to me and she's kind of stopped doing that now, but you know, same kind of thing. She's concerned that I'm going to hell and yeah, yeah. you know, Many all the rest of it. Yeah, it's true. Well, now when you talk about becoming a Christian, I mean, like I say, there's so many points at which I, I resonated, you know, in the book, because when you were a young kid, you become a Christian. And a lot of that's in that context of, you know, you're rootless, you're kind of living on your own with your brother, your your mom, I think you got divorced, she moves off to Washington, DC. So you're back and forth, you've got this very strange kind of life. Out of that comes, you find Jesus, yeah. you know, and it was a wonderful, amazing thing. I mean, your life did change on a lot of levels, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what comes across in the book. Yeah, that, that era for people that don't know how intoxicating the jesus movement was it's it's an era that most people that you would meet today wouldn't wouldn't realize wouldn't wouldn't know because it was it was literally in the mid early mid 70s when it was you know on the, on the cover of time magazine and 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 popular uh records were you know jesus is just all right with me the doobie brothers oh yeah <laughs> uh, jesus christ superstar was a big hit godspell and the music, uh, yeah, Christian rock music, came out yeah, of that. Yeah, Christian rock, Larry Norman, all that yeah. stuff. So for an 18-year-old boy uh, fresh out of high school with, with really not solid direction and not solid guidance and wondering what's next in my life and what am I going to do with myself and for, for Jesus to come along and give you something to attach yourself to, some bigger story that you can become a part of that was the intoxicating draw 
and to get involved with a group of people where, you know, the one chapter where I got saved, it, it, the, the energy in the room was nothing like I'd ever seen before. And it was just like, wow, I can, I can jump into this. Yeah. There's and, something here and be somebody and do something important. And Jesus is coming back and the world, you know, is, is, is happening. Everything's happening. And I can jump in the middle of that and, and be a, and for a guy that didn't have much going on, that was pretty appealing. Yeah. And I can remember too, cause I grew up, I'm maybe a couple years younger than you, but I grew up in church. Okay. So I was about 10, 11 years old in the mid seventies. So right in that area you're talking about. And I remember one of the things it was, it was, it was made Jesus cool. You know, because yeah. you had guys that had long hair oh, and he was beards cool. yeah. and all that stuff. And that, you know, my my parents, they were squares, man. I mean, they had my dad had short hair. He would never have grown a beard in a million years. Yeah. You know, and nobody in our church had one. <laughs> and we had a couple guys come in, you know, and they had leather jackets and long hair and played, you know, guitars, electric guitars and had drum sets, you know. Ooh, oh, yeah. That's what inspired me to become a drummer because I got into Christian rock. I used to listen to Larry Norman, Resurrection Band, Petra, then Striper, all those early bands that sort of broke the scene wide open. And oh, I yeah. thought, okay, this is something I can be a part of. I could grow my hair. I can play rock. I can play heavy metal for God, though. You know, so I was like, I'm when you're talking about opening that coffee shop and that scene, you know, bringing Russ Taff and his band in. I'm like, yes, I saw Russ Taff live. I, I knew exactly who you were talking about. Yeah, I bet, I bet you were. Oh, man. Riffing, Took riffing me right, right back. You, man. <laughs> yeah. Because we played in, in, you know, secular taverns and pubs all over Seattle when I was in the late 80s, early 90s. And that's what it was. It was rocking for God. You know, we were going to go out in the world, man, and be cool and have long hair. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and you could you like, could do I, that, you know. I love you use the word square because that that was you know these, <laughs> we thought of church people as square, you know. They oh, were they dead. were so square, we man. We didn't go to the churches, man. They were dead. We were taking Jesus to the streets, dude. exactly. But yeah, there's another poignant moment where you talk about, and it just it just took me right back. So you're talking about at one point you're working in construction. You're a young guy. You're on fire, evangelical in this Jesus movement. At one point, you go off to. A, a construction job in another state, I think it was. And I remember you talking about, here's the guys that you're, you know, you're working on the job site with. Then at night, you're going back to the hotel. They're cracking open a couple of beers. You know, not nothing's out of control, but you right. are in this struggle. And I can remember so poignantly being in those situations where you had to be a witness for God. You couldn't have that beer. You couldn't laugh at their dirty jokes. You couldn't, you were supposed to be above all that. And there's, yeah. that, there's that struggle all the time. How do you be a friend of these guys and yet evangelize to them when they see you at your best and your worst? And then that, that just hit me like a ton of bricks when you went through that section. Yeah, I, I, I really was able to recreate those. Uh, man, it was it was it was fun. It was hard, but fun to revisit those experiences and to relive those feelings of confusion. Because I remember feeling confused when I and, I, and these are things I hadn't thought about in decades until I was writing that particular chapter, for instance. Hmm. And so when I'm writing that particular chapter, and this is something that happened in 19, probably 1975. So we're, we're reaching way back, man. Yeah, right right back. <laughs> and, and, and so, but I, but as I'm, and it's what was interesting as I'm writing, literally as I'm writing on a daily basis, I start remembering things and feelings that I had that I hadn't thought about in decades. Yeah, you forgot so all I that. Remembered, I remembered feeling confused. How am I going to witness to these people if I'm trying to avoid them so as to not <laughs> exactly. be sucked into their sinful behavior? So on the one hand, I don't want to be tempted to look at their Playboy magazines with them. But yeah, have that Budweiser. Hand, if I don't get around them, how am I going to witness? Exactly. Them? <laughs> I can remember that so confusing. much. Yeah. Yeah. I got saved when I was in the Navy. So I was already, I'd already been in a couple of years yeah. and I, I'd been drinking and doing all the rest. Of it. Then I got saved and I gave, I just like overnight gave all that stuff up. So here's all my Navy buddies. I'd still go to the club with them after work, but they would be drinking beer and I'd be drinking Coke. So suddenly everything's changed. I'm trying to be this good Christian boy. Yeah, and they start you calling know? you preacher boy, and yeah, you know, and you're uh, stuck. Yeah, yet you've yeah, got a witness it, to it. Really, but then, but then you can also turn that on its head and go, well, 
per, they persecuted Jesus, so they're going to persecute me, and then you can become a <laughs> yeah. the martyr for God. Martyr. There's so many different places you can yeah. touch all that. We are going to return in just a few minutes in the second half of this chat with my good friend Dave Warnock. I'm really glad to have reconnected with him. It's a very poignant kind of thing, of course, as we mentioned, knowing that he's got ALS and he's not getting any better. I'm really glad to have him on the show for sure, and it's been too many years since we touched base. But when we come back, we're going to go ahead and pick up the story of what happened when he was on that trip with his construction buddies and there's another part to that story. We're also going to talk about his time in ministry and the effects that it had on him on a lot of levels. And then, of course, him becoming an atheist and then his activism work uh, with his dying out loud stuff on the back end of the episode. So there's a lot more still to come in the second half of this chat. What I wanted to do, though, is let you know what's coming up here in the in the next few weeks, next few episodes here on Mindship Podcast. We've got another ex-minister, and I mentioned him in this episode, Bruce Geringser. And we talked a little bit ago, he's another ex-pastor like me and like Dave. He comes out of the IFB, which is the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. And that's a whole other story there. So we had a really good time talking, me and Bruce, the other week. So that's coming up next. And then I'm going to start embarking on this stuff. I've been mentioning it for a while. I've done a lot of research on Pastor Doug Wilson. He's running a sort of a sprawling, some would say a cult-like empire up out of Moscow, Idaho, up in the northwest of the United States. And I've already had a conversation. I talked to uh, returning guest David Johnson. We had a chat the other week, and we talked about a Christian defense of slavery. And Doug Wilson plays a part in this because he wrote a book, I think it was in 1996. He co-wrote a book with someone called Stephen Wilkins, who was the co-founder of the League of the South, which is itself a racist organization. They wrote a book called Southern Slavery As It Was, and that kind of forms the basis of the conversation that I had with David Johnson, and he's really an expert in this field. In fact, speaking of David, he's going to be our guest in October for our MindShift Zoom call. We had Luna Corbden on just in the month of September, and now going forward into October, David's going to be coming back. I think it's on the 23rd of October, so I'm really looking forward to having David come back in on the show. And of course, as always, if you want to be a part of those MindShift Zoom calls, you can support the show on Patreon. If you appreciate the work that I'm doing, you can check out the links that are in the show notes to my Patreon page. And then the other thing I was going to mention, too, is that, okay, I talked about Doug Wilson. While I've been doing a ton of research, I've been getting a lot of help from the Examining Doug Wilson, some of the group that that hosts their Facebook page and their Twitter site. We've talked a few times, and I've got a couple of episodes coming out on Doug Wilson. The first one, we're going to look at the many scandals that have surrounded Doug Wilson and, more tellingly perhaps, is how he's handled those scandals and what it says about his character and whether or not he's actually leading a cult empire. We're going to analyze that in the first episode. And then in the second half, we're going to do part two because there's a lot of research that I've done. I think it'd be too much to do one episode. I'm going to get into the issue of all the people in Doug Wilson's orbit. So what kind of people does he surround himself with? Who is Who are his... Who are the people that he influences, I should say? And there's some really, really disturbing stuff going on. There's a lot of pastors, young guys who are kind of part of this, what's called the manosphere. And these guys are pushing his patriarchy message. And it's become very, very toxic. So that's another aspect of the Doug Wilson story. So we're going to take a deep dive into Doug Wilson, at least two episodes. And then we've got the one, as I say, with David Johnson talking about a Christian defense of slavery. So there's a lot coming up on Doug Wilson. So look for those episodes coming out. And I will just say, before we get back into the second half of this chat with Dave Warnock, you can follow me on Twitter at MindShift2018. You can also look me up on my public Facebook page, MindShift Podcast Facebook page. And finally, you can also subscribe to the MindShift Podcast YouTube channel. All right, let's get on back into the second half of this conversation with my good friend Dave Warnock as we continue to listen to his story as he lays it out in his book, Childish Things. Another thing that hit me, you talk about on this construction job, you find this church kind of like across the, the highway or the yeah. street from the hotel, and you strike up a friendship with the pastor and his family, and they kind of take you in, and you're living away from home. And I remember doing the exact same thing. I was in uh, Fallon, Nevada on the Navy base there, and I did the same thing. I didn't I didn't want to mix with the guys from the base because they were all going out getting drunk and 
going to the well, Nevada, you know, prostitution's legal. So they all wanted to do that. So I found a little church in town, made friends with the pastor, used to go to the Wednesday night Bible studies. So I'm thinking, yes, I could so resonate with that story. But yeah, you kind of became mentored a little bit by this guy. You sort of helped him out in ministry as well. Yeah, he it was it was really interesting to see, you know, how again, once you're always trying to find out what's God saying, what's God doing. And so when I found the little church there, little Assembly of God church there in, in Utah, and it was literally right across the highway from the hotel we were staying in, I, I immediately changed the narrative from God was bringing me on this trip to witness to these construction workers right. to God was bringing me on this trip to minister to this little church and to bring some life to them. Because I came in as the hippie Jesus freak in bell bottoms to this quiet little dead church full of old gray white hairs. Mm -hmm. And the pastor latched onto me like, like I was a drug, you know, Oh, come (laughs) here, come here. We need your energy. Need some life in this place. I'm dying here. You know, and so (laughs) throw me a bone, something. I remember feeling really bad for him when I left. I remember feeling like I'm abandoning this here. I am a baby Christian. And I'm talking, I was probably, this was, no, this was probably 1974. And I'd been a Christian maybe six months at this point. So I'm a little mm-hmm. infant in, in spiritual terms. And I remember thinking, how could it be that I feel bad that I'm abandoning this guy who's been serving God for years? But it felt that way. I felt like me leaving was taking something away from him that he needed. And I felt mm-hmm. I remember feeling really bad about that. I kept up with several of his kids for several years. Oh, right. And, and they all had trouble. In fact, one of them is still a Facebook friend, a girl there, uh, one of the girls. Her life has been a, a mess. One of the boys that I, I, I met uh, ended up committing suicide after, after also killing his ex-wife in yeah. a murder-suicide thing. You hear story after story like that, and you realize God never changed anyone's life. God never helped anyone. Mm-hmm. Anyone that had a good life made it themselves. And yeah. there was no Holy Spirit anywhere doing anything for anyone. Yeah. And that's, I think, another theme that comes across really clearly in the book is that, you know, you serve God. So you come back from this trip, you open a coffee house, you then end up becoming a pastor of, of a couple different churches. Yeah. And yet you were always struggling financially. Always. You know, think, terrible things happened. Your house burned down. And where was God and all that? And Well, it was a wonderful thing because you got a new house built and it was even better. See, God came through in the end. It was a terrible thing teaching you a lesson about faith, you know, but you're always struggling and struggling. Those of us that serve God the most, the pastors, the church leaders, we had the hardest time of it. So why, where's that? Where's God when it comes down to all that? You know, you could even say, well, God's, you know, you're keeping you poor so that you'll continue to trust and rely on him and lead a life of faith. So it never does work, does it on that level? No, there's so many disconnected pieces that you have to make up the story as you go along. And that's mm. where that's why when you the confusion when you have to factor God into whatever happens in your life. And as you said earlier, God never gets the blame, he just gets the yeah. credit. So yeah. he always gets off the bad, hook. it's on us. We're doing something wrong. If something's going mm-hmm. good, then God's blessing you. Yeah. So yeah, I I'm reading that chapter, going through it when you talk about your house, yeah, it was like a chimney fire or something like that. And yeah. you're standing on the street. You grabbed all the valuables out of the house. It's a sh- it was like around Christmas, I think it was. I mean, okay. horrible yeah. time. And even then, watching the house go up in flames, you're thinking, you know, where's God in all this? Yeah. And I can the, everything we thought. I mean, I remember Dr. Marlene Winnell. She said, the "Thing about religion, it pervades. It's all pervasive. It pervades every single area and aspect of our lives. We can't right. avoid." somehow interpreting everything around every suffering that comes our way is somehow God doing something. And we may not even find out the answer, this side of heaven. I mean, I can remember yeah. saying that as a pastor. This I'm sure you heaven, probably right. said it. Yeah. You'll know maybe when you get there and then you go into pastoring. And I can remember you talk about in the book, the politics, getting caught oh. up in the church politics. I mean, again, that took me right back. Again, where's God and all that? You got screwed out of a couple of different pastoral jobs. Where's God? What's he trying to teach you in all this? Yeah, that's another thing I've gotten several uh, comments from people about is, is getting a glimpse into the, the back room, if you will, the behind the mm-hmm. scenes of, of the goings on in church, you know, because people 
just see the Sunday morning show. Yeah. You know, the show that that is put on every Sunday morning or Wednesday night or Sunday night. They don't see the politics and the personality conflicts and the power struggles and the backbiting and the gossip and and the shit that goes on. It's yep. just it's a business. Church is a business and it takes dollars and cents to run it. It takes money. It, there's power struggles. There's personality. There's conflicts and, and all that stuff. And there's no and the more the more you get into that and see behind the scenes, the less of the spirit of God you begin to experience. Mm. And I remember longing for the simple days of just having a coffee house and yep. and just simply You're rocking for God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and then you get jaded and you get bitter and you get angry and and you just you start operating as as a business in the church and it, it loses all of its simplicity and beauty and love, yeah. if you will. Well, and I read an article the other day, it was actually on Fox News of all places, and it was a poll that's just come out. I don't know if you saw that. Something like 42% of American pastors are thinking about leaving the ministry. And one of the pastors they interviewed said, you get something, it's like decision anxiety or, or decision fatigue, something like that, where he said, no matter what decision you make as a leader, there's going to be a faction within the church that's going to disagree with it, that's going to be against it. And there's another yeah. faction that supports it. And some of the leaders will be against, some will support it. And I can remember that thinking, yeah, when I was a pastor, it was exactly the same thing. There was always a vocal minority. There was always a few rabble rousers. Some people on the elder board were a problem, you know, so it was just constant, as you say, it was draining, physically exhausting, emotionally, spiritually exhausting. One of the most thankless jobs, really, that, that you can really have. Yeah. It really is. And then, though, you've got this relationship with Phoebe, your, your now ex. And that, I know that's another spoiler alert. But it, it struck me again that as you started going through the deconstruction process, she begins kind of doubling down. I mean, how did yeah. that go in the end where you start really investigating? Because one thing you said that struck me, you said, you kind of realize, wait a minute, I've been teaching, I've been preaching, I've been leading Bible studies for decades. I've actually never really taken a deep dive into yeah. what I believe. And you go on this journey and you're like, holy shit, man, there's some real problems here. But yet at the same time, she's doubling down, which obviously led to conflicts. Yeah, it it was a, it was a difficult time to be sure because... She also, she knew me to be an authentic person and she saw firsthand the journey that I was on and knew that I wasn't just making stuff up, that I was genuinely troubled by what I was seeing and thinking about the faith that I, my lifelong faith, and mm. it had been hers as well, but she wasn't interested in, in joining me in that study, in that discovery. That journey, she, yeah. She was more really just, I kind of summed it up. I don't think I said it this way in the book, but I just realized that she really just was wanting to keep believing because it was a comfort level to her. Mm -hmm. It was like a warm blanket that she didn't want to let go of. And yeah. I was more interested in finding out what the truth was and whatever it cost me. And it ended up costing me a lot, but I just wasn't the kind of person that could close my eyes to something that I'd seen. Yeah. And for whatever reason, many people can, they just say, Oh, I don't, that, that room, the stuff in that room is really ugly. I'm just going to close the door here and not look in that room anymore. Yeah. I'm not able to do that. I'm going to get in the room and figure out what's in there. Right. You have to be true to yourself and all, uh, you're on that journey. Well, and the other aspect that comes out, this uh, probably the most painful part of the book, I think for me was hearing about how, okay, so you've got a couple of daughters and their spouses, they're involved in ministry at the same church that you were a part of, because I think you were pastoring like a satellite church, weren't you? Right. And you were told, or the pastor told your sons-in-law and daughters to basically shun you when over some ridiculous stuff. You tried and tried and tried. Oh, yeah. to ask for forgiveness and, you know, begging and pleading and weeping. And they, they were basically, no, we're going to shun you. We're told by the leadership. I mean, talk about your family turns against you. Talk about how painful that could be. Yeah. That was a part of the book that was probably of all the, you know, I took some creative license throughout the book as you can with a memoir, but mm -hmm. of, of, of any part of the book that was more true to life and, and almost word for word, some of the conversations and meetings 
it was that part. Yeah. I mean, I really, I really went to painstaking uh, effort to tell that part of it as as true to what happened as I could, as I could. And it was tough. It was, it was a very, very tough time and mm. painful and really um, excruciating for my ex and myself and went on for, for several years. Um, right. So are you reconciled to your daughters now? Would you say one of them has recently in the last couple of years opened back up to me and started dialoguing. I've seen her and the grandkids a, a few times. Uh, the other one still isn't primarily because from what I've learned, they're still connected with that pastor and his wife in a very real way. So they still have the poison yeah, that... IV hooked up to themselves. Yeah. But struggle is what led me to start questioning everything because yeah. I was at such a place of desperation for help from church leaders in the denomination, church leaders in the neighborhood, in the city, and then and then God, you know, God help me here. This is my family that's blowing apart. And mm. it's only because I was trying to serve you. So can can you offer a little throw me a bone here? <laughs> right. Something. Anything. I started thinking, wait just a minute, is is he even there? Yeah. And that's really what got me, you know, some people say, oh, you just, you know, fell away because you're mad at God. No. And, or because the church mistreated. A lot of people say, yeah, you know, you're you burned. Just, you got burned. Yeah, you just got burned by the church. You just need to find a better church. It's not, it's, yeah. it's not religion. It's relationship. You know, it's, <laughs> you know yeah. all that. I've heard uh, it now. No. It, it didn't. It led me. It, it was a catalyst to begin me to to cause me to begin to search out my faith. But once I started searching, I realized there's a lot that's not adding up here. And I've never taken the time to investigate it in three and a half decades. Hmm. Embarrassingly, yeah. that was the case. Yeah, but I at least you did, it. though. At least you did. And of course, yeah. in the end, another spoiler alert, it costs you your marriage. It just wasn't going to happen. She was going to stay a Christian. You were not, you know, mm-hmm. so that's that's an, an aspect of this whole story. I mean, in my case, I'm divorced as well uh, last couple of years. However, it was slightly different in that we didn't we went on the deconstruction journey together. We've served in ministry for years like you guys did. But luckily, that wasn't the issue that led to us divorcing. So in that sense, I didn't walk that same journey that you did. We shared that sort of deconstruction. But you know, when you leave your spouse, then it's a whole nother world opening up, which you describe in the book, because off the back of that, then you, you know, you build this new community, and mm-hmm. then you get diagnosed with ALS yeah. in the midst yeah. of that, you know, so some, well, someone would say, oh, God's punishing you, Dave, that's, that's what this is, he's trying to get your attention for walking away, I'm sure someone must have said that, or something like that. Yeah, I've, I've heard allusions to that, people don't have the courage to say it to my face, but I've mm. heard others allude to that to someone else you know and there, there's a really simple response to that there's there's like one of my daughters I, I mentioned in the book has cancer has dealt with cancer and so you, you have to answer then if God's punishing me with ALS for my deconversion then she's got cancer very serious stage four cancer is he punishing her or is he just testing her see right. what is it just don't add up Yep. He's teaching our lesson on faith. Because I can yeah. remember I took a class in seminary called the theology of suffering. And basically it's what you articulated earlier, this whole idea that we were going to go through and exhaustively study all through the Bible and come up with all the reasons why the Bible talks about why God allows suffering in our lives. We spent a week going through all this, you know, from eight to five every day in this seminary, you know, and I felt like, okay, I walked away from that, like you said, with a bunch of answers. So right. people, when, when they asked me, there was some sort of answer. Maybe he's punishing you. Maybe it's sin that you've done. Maybe it's a, a lesson in faith. There's a million reasons. And the ultimate thing comes down, well, it's, uh, we don't know. We will find out when we get to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the ultimate trump card. Yeah, well, yeah the, we just don't know. God's ways are higher. God's ways are in a mysterious way. Well, the last thing I was going to mention, one thing that really strikes me about the book, too, is that surely it must answer the charge. Okay, Dave, you were never a Christian. You know, that, that must be another charge that people have laid at your door to say, okay, yeah, you walked away from the faith. But the fact is you were never saved to begin with. So you don't have it. You never had anything to begin with. But I think the the book shows that you were dedicated 100%. You were all in for decades 
Mm-hmm. What, what more could you have done to prove that you were a true Christian? Yeah, there, there have been people who, that's one of the current, the standard responses to deconversion is you were never a Christian. Yeah, and I, my response to that is if, if that's true, then, then nobody is. Yeah, who can, who can say and, they are? Yeah, because nobody tried harder than me. If you look at exactly. if you read my book, you'll see that, like you said, I gave it everything I had. The other response to that is, you're right, I, I wasn't a Christian because there is no such thing. <laughs> right. It's just a label that people attach to themselves to identify with a certain brand of religion. And, and it's, it's, not, there's, it's not a thing. Nobody's ever changed. There's no born again. You, you can't be born again. I mean, these are all biblical terms, but sure. it, it's nothing that actually ever happens. No mm-hmm. Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates your life. Yeah. So yeah, I was never a Christian and neither are you because there's not one. <laughs> right. You can call yourself whatever you want, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you've got to go because you've got another show to do. So the book is Childish Things. Again, I would recommend people if you can get it on Audible, uh, it, buy the book regardless. But I, I just really think the Audible version is, is is like streets higher than the other ones. It's so much better. And so how can people find you? What's the best way to get a hold of you if they want to follow up on this conversation or they've read the book and they say, I'd love to talk to Dave? Well, uh, the easiest way is just to go. The website is daveoutloud.org. Um, not dying out loud, but daveoutloud.org. Version, the book's on, on Amazon and any version you want. Mm-hmm. It's on the Audible. There are people that do want signed copies. We do ship those out to the continental U.S. and uh, Canada, but not overseas. Because, well, you want to pay for the shipping. I had somebody from... yeah. Hungary asked me about a book and I said, well, figure out the shipping and I'll send it to you. <laughs> That's right. I don't mind I'm signing not, it, but I'm not I paying to go to Hungary. <laughs> but yeah, I do have a lot of people requesting signed copies and they can, they can get the email from the website and we're happy to do that uh, if it works out, you know, for shipping and so, so on and so forth. But yeah, that's, uh, I think it's, I'm really pleased with how the book came out. I really, you know, everybody, everybody has a story and, and, when you tell people, yeah, I'm going to, I'm writing a memoir. Sometimes you see the glossy look in their eyes and they go, <laughs> here we go. Yeah. Okay. Now you're going to want me to read <laughs> your memoir and you're going to, now I'm going to have to tell you, yeah, it's, it's good. But yeah, um, when you don't really I, think it is, <laughs> the response has been really overwhelming to me and I've really been pleased with how it came out. And um, so I think people will enjoy the story. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a story worth telling. And I think we told it well. I think you really did. And I, I posted it up in our Facebook group. And I said, you know, if you grew up in evangelicalism in the sort of 70s, 80s, early 90s, that period, then even more so you'd want to read the book. Because like I say, I grew up a lot of the, in a lot of that era. And so many things just resonated point by point by point. So uh, it's definitely a, it's a good memoir on that level for sure. So thank you so much, Dave. Uh, I know you've got to go because you've got another show to do, but thank you again for taking the time out. I know we had a hell of a time getting this together. Yeah. We must have rescheduled about 10 times, but we finally made it happen. So thank you so much, Dave. My pleasure.